I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Every once in a while, he would say these very strange things like, if anything ever happens to me, you guys will be taken care of out of the blue and it's kind of like what would go wrong (laughs) like why would anything happen to you but underneath there's this very unsettling feeling of like i don't know what what you're trying to tell me dad this is death sex and money you're killing me smalls the show from wnyc about the things we think about a lot you're a virgin who can't drive and need to talk about more I'm Anna Sale. I have this photo here of of my dad um, asleep. This is Whitney Joyner. We're sitting in her Brooklyn kitchen, and she's just pulled this picture off of her refrigerator. I don't know whose porch this is. He's taking a nap. It's probably somewhere in Kentucky, where they lived when she was growing up. No date on the back. But I like this because it's just him in repose. Having photos of her dad around her apartment, this is new for Whitney. Only in the last year or so has she really looked at what he left behind. I have his family Bible. I have his copy of Gone with the Wind, which apparently he read 17 times. Whitney's father, Joe, died in September 1992. And there are a lot of things she doesn't know about his life. I just have little pieces here and there. Like I have this card from somebody who is talking to my father, who obviously knew my father as a gay man. She doesn't know the person who wrote this Christmas card, a guy named Marty, or how he knew her father. That's a history she's just beginning to piece together. And like a lot of family history, there's what she's been told about what was really going on, the big silences around what was never discussed, and what she does remember from childhood. He loved to play the piano. He was a deacon at our church. And his father had been a a Baptist missionary, so... His parents had both died when he was 14. So he grew up in that world. When I was really young, he wasn't really around that much. Mom was certainly the main parent in my life. And I think around the time of the divorce is when things switched. You know, a lot of times when parents get divorced, you choose one or the other. And I I chose my father, partly because my mom, we were living with my mom. And so she was dealing with all of the ups and downs of our daily lives. And so it was just kind of easier to be annoyed with her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like we're teenage, you know, pre-adolescence. Whereas my dad's house felt calmer. He would take us to concerts and to restaurants and he loved to cook. So you're the older sister and your brother's five years younger than Mm -hmm. you. When you felt closer to your dad after the divorce, was it a feeling of this is where life is more fun or... I feel like I want to make sure he's taken care of as the responsible kid. It was kind of both. 
I didn't know why they'd gotten divorced, but I felt like maybe it was my mom's fault. And I didn't know exactly why that was. She also had a new relationship with someone who is now her husband. They've been married for however long, 25 years. Um, And my dad never had anybody else. He never Mm -hmm. dated anybody else. It felt like I had him all to myself. And it did feel like I needed to take care of him in some ways because he was... um, he was pretty hard to deal with out in the world in a lot of ways. Like he was, he could be really vain and really um, quick to anger. Like he would be kind of quick to get angry with um, service people or wait staff, that kind of thing. And I always felt like I was like running after mm. him, kind of cleaning up after him. Mm-hmm. I always had this feeling of like, oh, you guys don't understand. Like he lost his parents when he was 14 in this car wreck and he was in the car and his life has been so hard and like, I just, I felt very protective of him. Yeah. And he was your dad and you loved him and you you wanted to help people in the world love him even when he was difficult. Yeah, absolutely. But then also, yeah, like his house just felt more fun to be around. Um, yeah. I mean, later my mom would say things like, oh, he was creating false memories for you guys. But I think that's, you know, not a very nice way to look at it necessarily. What do you think she means when she says that? Oh, well, that he knew he was going to die and that he was kind of stacking things up. What do you remember about him first getting sick? It was in kind of spurts. He... um he seemed very healthy for a long, long time. Like, I never knew anything was wrong with him. The only thing I knew was wrong with him is that we would go to the hospital in Lexington and see this doctor, and he would get his blood drawn. And you and your brother would hang out in the waiting room? Yeah, we would just be in the waiting room because it was kind of like, oh, we're going to the mall and the movies and just stopping off at the doctor. And he explained that he had a blood problem. And at one point I said, oh, like, like leukemia. And he was like, yeah, something like that. And then the next thing that happened was every other weekend, mom would drive us from outside of Louisville, where we lived, to Frankfort, Kentucky, and drop us off in this um, <laughs> in this hotel parking lot with dad. Like we yeah, would, that they was would the drop off the drop off. Yeah. They would meet us. So we pull in. He's not there. We're like, where, where, where's dad? He's not here. He like careens in in his little black BMW, like he careens in, gets out of the car and is just out of his mind. Like he smells weird. He's wearing two different socks, which is very strange for him. Like he's a very vain man. He always looked very nice. He was acting really strange. And I thought, oh my God, my dad is drunk. And I've never seen, I'd never seen him drunk. Like my, Uh they never really, my parents didn't drink or, you know, they weren't like partiers in any way. So I was I was like, oh no, oh no, like my dad's drunk. <laughs> what uh-huh. if he's an alcoholic? Like I just started to like go mm-hmm. like go off in my mind. And my mom, I had never seen my mom do this. She got very like mama bear protective. She was like, kids get in the car. Her tone was so terrifying. It was just like, okay, okay, okay. So Drew and I got in the backseat of, of her car. So they're arguing. I could hear him say, they're my kids too. And I, I hear her saying, Joe, you're not well. And then he zips off. I I knew something very serious was happening. And we get back to the house and um, 
I go to my room, my mom goes to her room and just shuts the door and spends the next like five hours on the phone. I don't even know what she's doing, but I keep knocking on the door and she's like, I'm on the phone, I'm on the phone. And I can tell she's crying. And I don't know why I thought, leapt to like the worst possible conclusion. But when I, when it finally she was off the phone and I went into her room and she's surrounded by all these Kleenex and I'm like, is dad dying? And she said, yes. Whitney's father had developed dementia from lesions on his brain. It was a complication from AIDS. Coming up, how 13-year-old Whitney learned her father had the disease and what she's just discovering now, 22 years after he died. One of my favorite movies is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. For anyone who's ever had their life fall apart and they have to start back from zero, it's a must-see. And I recently got to talk to the star, actress Ellen Burstyn. You may know her from The Exorcist or from the most recent season of Louie. She's 81 years old, and she lives in a beautiful apartment overlooking Central Park. Hello. Hi. You're so kind to come back. We recorded a long conversation there, in her bedroom, actually. It's full of crystals because they catch the light and reflect the light. And then I heard afterward, she wanted me to come back. That was such a good question you asked me. How do, how do you think of yourself? And I realized after you were gone that I had never asked myself that question, nor had anyone else. And I answered you kind of superficially. She wanted to be more precise about the good and the bad. That's our next episode, an extended conversation with Ellen Burstyn. You don't want to miss it. I'm telling you, you will be quoting her back to yourself for years, like how she describes her days off. I have what I call shouldless days. Today is a day where I, there's nothing I should do. So I only do what I want to do. And if it's nap in the afternoon or watch TV and eat ice cream, I get to do it. I had that kind of day yesterday. Shouldless. I like that. Shouldless days. I recommend them. That's Ellen Burstyn. And I have an update to share. Our last episode came out on September 24th. And you may remember that was the same day that comedian Chris Gethard was either going to resume his public access show or just not show up. Come 11 p.m. Eastern time, he was there. I realized this is what I like to do with my Wednesday, hang hang out with all my best friends. This surprised me because when we talked, I really thought he was done. But then something changed. Well, you know, I was, it was actually at my wedding. I was there and um, just looked around and realized how many people in my life who were attending this wedding, people who I met through this thing, and kind of felt like it was, like, arrogant of me to feel like I had a choice. Like, these are all people who have stepped up in my life over and over again. Plus, he heard from fans that they were totally fine if he spent less time on the show. Yeah, they, I mean, they were emailing and calling and saying, like, put less work into it. We don't care. It's not as good as it used to be. We just want it around. He was talking on his cell from L.A., where he was staying in a buddy's apartment. He went out there to look for work. Like jobs. I'm trying to find jobs and stuff. That's what I'm doing in L.A., trying to live and feed myself.
With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism, there's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In 1992, when Whitney Joyner was in ninth grade, her father was becoming very sick. With some people, it goes on for years. And with my dad, it was very, very quick. She didn't know what was happening. She later learned that he'd been living with HIV for five years. At first, he only told her mom. He told her right away. She didn't tell anybody for an entire year. Were they just divorced then when he found out or divorcing? No, they didn't get divorced. The story goes that he found out in 1987. He told her right away. He told her not to tell anybody. So she didn't tell a soul for a year. They only talked about it with each other. And apparently my dad, I mean, this is like an example of why my dad was (laughs) kind of, he was a wonderful parent, but not a good husband in any way. And not a good person in some ways, but he um, told her not to get tested because if she got tested and was positive, he wouldn't be able to live with himself, he told her. So did your mom not get tested? So she didn't get tested. For him? Yeah, she didn't get tested. I mean, she told me this just a couple of years ago. So finally she was like, I've got to get, I've, I've got to get tested. And if I'm positive, then we're going to do this together. And if I'm negative, I'm getting a divorce. And that's when they got divorced. But I didn't know any of that, of course. And it's only now, you know, over the past couple of years that that she'll be like telling me a little, little by little, you know, little things, you know, Um, because I think she doesn't want to remember, you know, it's so painful. Yeah. But um, so he told her right away and they dealt with it together. Just the two of them not telling anybody in this small town in Kentucky. In, at the height of yeah. like, the AIDS crisis. Right. Just kind of becoming part of public awareness. Exactly. So that's when she was worried about if anybody finds out about this. I mean, she, she only recently has been like, Whitney, I was so terrified that if anybody found out that I would lose my job, your dad would lose his job, you guys would be kicked out of school, that people would attack us somehow, that our house could be, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to sell our house. You know, like we were, we were both so terrified. Um, so I was oblivious to all of this at the time. I was just thinking my parents were getting divorced because parents get divorced. sitting down with her on the couch in our living room and saying, do you think dad's gay? Because I didn't know any gay men. I didn't really know what that meant. But I did know that he had never dated 
since their divorce. He never had any girlfriends, and he just was different than all of my friends' dads. I mean, these things are also stereotypical now. But, like, he loved, like, taking me shopping, you know? Like, I remember going to, like, the Limited 2 <laughs> in the mall, you know? And, like, you know, him picking things out for me and being like, oh, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Uh-huh. And the clerk being like, oh, this is so funny. A dad, you know, into clothes for his daughter. And me being like, you just don't know him, you know? Uh-huh. Like, kind of just being, like, <laughs> protective of yeah. him, you know? So I asked mom, and mom said, oh, I don't, I don't think so. She said, I think he just doesn't like sex that much. And I, that was the only time we'd ever talked about their sex life, ever. That's what your mom said to you when you were 12. I don't know if she even remembers this. We've never talked about having this conversation. She, the way, when she talks about it now, she's like, Whitney, I was so naive. Of course he was gay. I just didn't see it. Anyway, so, yeah, we didn't, she didn't know until after he died. And then um, a, a very close mutual friend of theirs who was out... Um, that they all went to college with told her that he was and that he had um, had been going to gay clubs in Louisville and Lexington and I think it all started coming together for her like oh so that's kind of where he might have been you know all those times that um, you know back in the back in the day when he like because because those times, like earlier on when I was talking about him not being around, there were a couple of days where he was just like gone, like a couple of like, like she put out an APB for him once and, you know, just, just him being gone. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she thinks that's what was going on. How long after he died did she have that conversation with their mutual friend? Like right after. I don't even know if it was before the funeral or after the funeral, but it was pretty much immediately after his death. And because he had sworn up to his deathbed, basically, that he was straight. I don't know why he was so fixated on lying about this. But he had, um, you know, I had asked him. What did you tell me about that conversation? So we were back at his house. It was like the first weekend that we were spending together since all of this had been happening, since he'd been in the hospital. And he sat me down on in my, the room that I shared with my brother, we had these matching beds and we sat down and he said, um, so I've been sick and I was like, yes. And he, um, I don't remember all the, all the details, but he basically just said, I'm, I'm HIV positive. And, you know, he's emotional, his tears welling up and, and, um, at some point he said, can I have a hug? And I was like, of course. And he asked you for a hug. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I said, you know, I asked mom once if you were gay. Cause I just thought, well, of course, <laughs> of course you're gay. <laughs> and he said, I'm not gay. In this kind of like pff, scoffing way. Like what? I'm not gay. Obviously. And, um, and I said, oh, 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 okay. He was like, no, I got it from a woman. You can get it from women too, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, part of me at the time was relieved, honestly, because I was still so young that I didn't want to have to deal with the gay dad at 13 in rural Kentucky. And I hadn't totally 
you know, the idea of having to think about your dad having gay sex and da 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 da. Like I just, you know, hadn't gone through that whole process yet. I mean, now I'm super cool with it, but at the time, um, I was kind of like, oh, okay, good. But at the, but I was also like, but you're lying, <laughs> like. So you 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 knew he was lying to you. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, that just it was just like, but you're lying. Like yeah. I know, like this is not. But it's a, in some ways, it felt like a relief that you weren't going to go there together. Right. Exactly. Like it felt like a relief, huh. but also like, but like a, it felt like a relief, but just just in that kind of like, oh, we don't have to have that conversation, but really we should have that conversation because that's the important one, and um, and we both know that's really what's happening here. Kind of feeling when he told you he was HIV positive, did he say, "And I have AIDS, and I'm going to die. I'm not no. well." No. He said, I um, hope, I, I really want to make it to see your, you graduate from high school. But he died five months later. very angry at him who, who was angry my mom my stepfather my grandparents just my whole family was very angry at him for lying about his sexuality um to me it felt like it felt like our family was almost glad that he was gone anytime I brought him up there's this kind of eye rolling on this on the part of my family so I felt like um like, I just shouldn't talk about him. Mm-hmm. And I would feel <laughs> ashamed of loving him, you know, even though it's my father. And why would anybody have to feel ashamed of loving your father? So for years, through high school and college, Whitney wouldn't talk much about her dad. She would tell people he died from AIDS, but not comfortably. It was nearly 10 years later, when she was living in New York, before she met someone else who lost a parent to AIDS. It was a writer named Alicia Abbott. Just felt so, like, shocking. There was somebody else out there with the same story. And we just started talking about, it's so weird, we don't know more people. There have to be more people. Not everyone who died of AIDS is a gay man with no children. Now Whitney and Alicia are trying to find others. They just launched a website this month called The Recollectors to collect stories and to remember other parents lost to AIDS. And it's prompted more conversation within Whitney's family. Her cousins gave to a Kickstarter to support the project. And that old Christmas card to her dad from Marty... Whitney only discovered it last year while she and her mom were going through old photos together. And it was really interesting to read this last year, last Christmas, because until I got this card, or until I read this card, I just assumed that my father probably just had, like, restroom and park sex. (laughs) Like, very, like, reckless, just... I mean, not reckless, not reckless, but anonymous, yeah. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay. Dear Joe... Sorry for neglecting to keep in touch for such a long time, but it was certainly a pleasant surprise to hear from you. 
Sorry to hear that there is nothing new in your life, especially on the romance front. Ha ha. (laughs) Of course, there's nothing new in my love life either, but my life has not been boring. Jim and I have been to Key West three times this year. May for Memorial Day, October for Fantasy Fest. (laughs) What a blast. And November for Thanksgiving. As for his friend in New York, it's history, and of course, in my opinion, he's not ready for a commitment yet to anyone but himself, and maybe not for a long time. I hope the kids are fine. I'm sure by now they're really growing up. Do you still have close contact with them? I hope the new year brings good things for you and possibly a new romance if this is what you want. Again, please have a great holiday. Keep in touch. Marty. So this is right. So, so he died 10 months after this card. So this card blew my mind because obviously like the fact that my dad is like nothing new in my life, no new romances. What about how, how's that guy? How's Jim's friend in New York? What's going on with him? Like what? So my dad had this, I I don't know all these questions. And Marty knew about you. Yeah, exactly. I have to find this Marty. This, it, it changed. Yeah. It changed from just like, okay, you're, you know, just like down and dirty. That's cool. To, <laughs> to like, oh, you're like me. <laughs> Liking people who don't like you back. <laughs> Whitney Joyner. She's an editor for Marie Claire in New York and the co-founder of The Recollectors with Alicia Abbott. More stories from children of parents who died of AIDS are at therecollectors.com. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Jessica Miller, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Chris Bannon, and Jim Briggs. Thanks also to Allison Wortman. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. You can send story ideas to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. Death, Sex, and Money is on Facebook. If you like us, like our page or share this episode. If you like this one, you might also want to check out the episode with Dan Savage, where, among other things, he talks about the long process of mourning his mother. When Whitney and Alicia started sharing their stories, they immediately found others who had a parent die of AIDS, more than 50 so far from all over, who described details they didn't know they shared with anyone else. Somebody mentioned their father being really weird and awkward about razors, you know, like, you can't borrow my razors. And we were all like, oh, yeah, me too. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.